What's up, guys? Welcome back to the podcast. This here is a complete bonus podcast. And the reason I say that is because it's not really it's not really my recording. I was invited on to a live webinar back before Christmas to end off the new year by Armstrong Fluid Technologies, who's been a tremendous partner of mine for the podcast to, to provide some people that are knowledgeable within the industry to talk about certain topics. Over the last couple of years, they've provided good, solid conversation for this podcast. So I really appreciate that. And they invited me onto this podcast. So obviously I'm going to do them that favor and jump on. Now there are live, uh, this was live. So there's, there's live questions coming in too that we try to answer as well. There's about six of us on the panel. We talk about many things, steam, hydronics, psychrometrics, service aspects surrounding all of that and answer some questions that came in from the audience as well over the course of the year through their webinars. So there's a lot of educational points we touch on during this conversation. And just so you guys know, this, this was my first time going on to a live uh, go-to webinar, I think was the application we used for this. And I didn't realize that it didn't pick up my my podcasting mic, my sure mic that I use. So it picked up my the mic on my um, my webcam, which is three feet away from me. So you can still hear me. I just wanted to point that out. And it's not as, it's not as clear as it would be if I was sitting right beside my sure mic a couple of inches away. Anyway, this is a really good conversation, guys. Let's get to it. This is the HVAC Know-It-All podcast. I'm your host, Gary McCready. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our final webinar of 2022. Today, I'm joined by a great panel of experts. Um, so from Armstrong Fluid Technologies, we have Mr. Peter Wolf, um, my counterpart uh, up north. Um, we also have Mr. John Stischak, another one of our application engineers. We have Mahekpreet Sandhu, another one of our application engineers that works for works alongside John with my team here in the U.S. And we're also graced with uh, the presence of Mr. Russ Hotram uh, from Canada. Um, Russ, like me, is an old-time STEAM guy, so um, we get we get to talking about lots of things, uh, steam, uh, and various times in our, in our, uh, conversations throughout the year. Um, we also have a very special guest with us today. Um, Mr. Gary McCready. Uh, Gary is a HVAC service and mechanical contractor in the, um, greater Toronto area, I believe. Um, but Gary also is the owner of the HVAC know it all podcast. Um, we have participated quite a bit in the podcast. I've had numerous great conversations with Gary, and he brings a slightly different spin to what we talk about here, because uh, Gary's background is predominantly on the service side of things. So Gary's going to join us today, and hopefully we help educate service people as well as the engineering community and the owners out there. So, <clears throat> excuse me, with that being said, uh, today's agenda as Neil said, this is a little bit different. We've got several topics that we want to talk about. Uh, the first is psychrometrics and the properties of air. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the fundamentals of steam and cover, cover off some stuff that people had questions on that we didn't get to during the webinars. Uh, we're also going to talk about pump motor technology and the differences, things that are changing within our industry. We're going to talk about variable primary systems as well as primary secondary uh, and what those pumping technologies mean for the industry as a whole. We're also along the way, we're going to talk about HVAC services and what service really means and how the service industry has changed 
um, especially over the years since I first got into the HVAC industry, you know, some almost 50 years ago, our industry has changed dramatically in what we do and how we do it. And so hopefully Gary can shed some light onto that as to the things that we see changing within our industry. So with that, I'd like to open things up today and I'm gonna let John Stischak lead off and talk about psychometrics. John, it's all, all right. yours. All right, thank you very much, Tony. Um, we got a lot of great questions on psychometrics. Um, one of the areas that kind of focused in on a little bit was trying to select a air handler to handle the SHR in the space. Um, and it, it kind of depends a little bit on, on the air handler that you have to work with. I mean, a lot of times we're limited to simple DX split systems. And you can go to the equipment specific performance pages and they can kind of give you roughly where that equipment's gonna operate at. Um, at the end of the day though, it, it's a dynamic changing situation. It's never really locked in. So ASHRAE actually has, and they're published design data, a dehumidification design point. And so if you check that point against your load, you can put that into a load calculation software is probably your easiest way to get it. Um, you can kind of see what that equipment's capable of on that design day. Remember, you're not gonna run that much on that dehumidification design day because it's usually a cooler, more humid temperature. So you can kind of see how much you're gonna fall short based on your run times and what the equipment's gonna pull out with that specific data. Um, from there, you're gonna have to see how much dehumidification you need. And that was kind of another question that we kind of rolled into was sizing that dehumidifier. You're gonna kind of do it worst case, just like you would sizing an air handler. When you get your peak load, you're gonna get your peak dehumidification load. So you're gonna to have to see, all right, how many pints do I need to remove per hour per day and extrapolate that into however that dehumidifier is, is rated. Um, but for the most part, in most normal buildings, unless you have a lot of outside air or extreme people loads or a lot of latent load coming from inside the building, your, your peak cooling day is gonna be a lower dehumidification load on the unit than that peak dehumidification day. So under most normal circumstances, it'll typically be handled like in a regu regular residence or an office building. But if you're getting into like hospitals or maybe office buildings that are like a call center, we have a lot of internal load, you might look at, you know, using your outside air equipment and specifying a, you know, more stringent um, either discharge air temperature coming off your cooling coil and then adding some reheat back in to handle those dehumidification situations and really wringing the water out of that airstream to take some of the load off your standard air handlers that you have selected in the space. Um, I don't know if, if Gary, if you wanted to add anything in there, um, you know, from your experience in the service side. Yes. Yeah, so what I was going to say to that is, is dedicated dehumidification can be a, a very good thing when it comes to indoor air quality. Now, myself for the last year or so has been tackling, and, and you and I talked about this, John, recently, uh, in tackling building science and, and the building envelope and how HVAC systems intertwine with that. And, and one of the things that I do in my own home is I run an HRV constantly. And, and in the shoulder season, when you don't run, when you don't have to run your your air conditioning system because you don't have a high sensible load in the home, if you're exchanging air constantly and it's a shoulder season and it's the air outside is almost close to 100% saturated because it's pouring rain outside, you're introducing some humidity into the space because you want to keep your ventilation rates up. So having a dedicated dehumidification system in a home or in a building that that is doing potentially the same thing with 
ventilation rates, high ventilation rates, bringing that, that fresh air in from outside. Uh, yeah, a, a dedicated dehumidification system that uses reheat, either electric or hot gas reheat, can be essential to, to that building's indoor air quality and, and the health of the building. And also, you've probably seen this kind of changing too, as, as people do like window upgrades, the buildings get tighter and, and more energy efficient. The loads in those buildings have kind of fallen off as far as the sensible load from lighting and, and other internal sources, but your your people load and your outside air load hasn't changed. So you know, it's kind of another leads right to another question of, you know, how do we handle these issues? And I think you kind of hit the, the nail around the head. Um, you, sometimes you have to add that additional demidification, whether that's with uh, outside air systems that are going to handle it, or whether it's with a dedicated demidification system, like you mentioned, um, especially if you're running energy recovery ventilators, which we, you know, I came from a southern environment, hot and humid, and people like to use those to offset their outside air load, and they can be very effective at that unless the building gets humid, and then you stop getting that humidification effect on those total enthalpy wheels and, and cores. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I'll add this too, is that for, from the service side, because I'm a service tech and, and I run in circles with other service techs, I think it's really important for a service tech to get a real understanding of psychrometrics because it comes back to psychrometrics like properties of air. And, and back when I went to school 25 years ago when I did my pre-apprenticeship, it was plotting points on a psychrometric chart. Now, I don't do that anymore because we have tools that calculate it within an app for you. You can take out a probe, measure the air, and it gives you a bunch of information regarding the air, and it helps you decide what you want to do with that information. But what I'd like to say is for, for the techs that are learning, even been in the trade for, for many, many years, if they've never picked up a psychrometric chart, uh, taken even like a back in the day, the sling psychrometer, getting get your wet bulb and, 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 you, and, and your dry bulb temp and plotting it on a psychrometric chart and see what other air property readings you can come up with, I think is really important and beneficial because it's like a tech using digital gauges, but using analog gauges first to get a feel for it and then kind of graduating through, through, the, um, through, the, through the tools to kind of elevate their game with efficiency. I think it's good to know that the grassroots fundamental way to do it. Um, and then you just kind of have that, that knowledge, right? Knowledge is 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 power so I mean, that's just kind of my thought yeah, I, I could definitely agree with that um coming up kind of at the tail end of of the older gentlemen that would use that all the time they'd have a better understanding of the fundamentals than than a lot of the younger guys that just plug it into the computer and get an answer you, you mm -hmm. really get a feel for it when you have to plot it spend time with it and, and work on it and so that definitely um will help out just having that basic understanding so you can do some quick math pull out your psychometric chart and see where things are going and make sure the gauges make sense because they, they can be wrong, right? If you put in bad data or have a failing sensor, you can get things that don't make sense. Correct, yes. Hey, John and, John and, yep. John and Gary, we, we have a couple of questions from the audience as well too. Um, one of them is around the, um, the illegal uh, nature. So it says using heat to provide dehumidification is legal in many cases. Uh, how would you address that, that situation and that comment? So that, that is a, a very important um, point is if you are using electric reheat or any new energy, uh, a lot of times that's been basically made illegal in the code to do that. So you're supposed to use um, reclaimed energy, uh, whether that's on-site reclamation or on-site energy generation or in the, like hot gas reheat with cooling is becoming a, a major issue. So if you have a big dedicated outside air system that's running hot gas reheat to dehumidify that air, 
and then you have cooling systems on in the building, you're basically throwing away energy to reheat and then cooling the air back down to satisfy your sensible load. There's gonna to have to be more complex controls coming in the future to address that, where if your hot gas reheat is running in your dedicated outside air system, you need to basically not be running uh, cooling in the building. So if you have a cooling call, you're gonna set that hot gas reheat temperature uh, basically lower to get lower discharge air temperatures and let that outside air unit, that big expensive unit, do a lot of your building cooling, um, especially if you have um, like uh, VRF systems. That's a huge, huge energy saver in a VRF system because you don't want all these little air handlers running to cool the space if you've just spent a whole bunch of money reheating uh, air you already had cooled. So um, there, there are basically controls that have to come into into play to get around that. And, and you can still use that dehumidification and still use that you know, even new energy, if you have to, to run a dedicated humidifier, if that's your only way to get the moisture out. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to provide a comfortable building and it has to be a dehumidified building and, and it has to work. Um, you just can't run additional cooling if you're still running dehumidification and you don't need both of those, you know, in conjunction uh, with each other. Um, okay. One other cool. Oh, so go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go, ahead. go ahead, John, please. Oh, I had one, one other thing that I wanted to mention briefly. Um, that we had seen come in and it was asking about how humidity moves around uh, in a space. Um, and it kind of does come back to, to vapor pressure. This question was kind of giving an example if you have a, a, a lower grains of, of grains per pound in one space, but it's at 60% RH and you have a higher grains per pound in another space, but it's at 50% RH, like it's a, a warmer temperature uh, in, the, in space number two. Uh, which way that humidity, which way the moisture is going to try to move. Um, it's going to come back to the vapor pressure, and typically your relative humidity is a pretty good indication of which way it's going to go. Low relative humidity is a, has a drying effect. It's going to want to pick up moisture in that space. So you're going to move from a higher relative humidity to a lower relative humidity space with the vapor pressure. But to some degree, that's a lesser force than infiltration in most buildings. So air movement will carry that moisture with it faster than you're gonna have vapor pressure moving that moisture around. Um, that was the, the one other thing I kind of wanted to touch on. Um, but John, did you have other questions? Very, thank you for that very thorough answer. My my question is for Gary. Uh, Gary, any any comments on what John said, any addition to what John said or Tony? Uh, so what John just described is, is more like a, an engineering thing where you'd have to kind of wrap your head around it. You'd have to dig in your heels a little bit and, and do a little bit of research because as a technician, you don't walk into a space and wonder how these things happen. You're just there to fix a problem in front of you. And it requires a little bit more digging to, to understand humidity and temperature and relative humidity and wet ball, dry ball in, in, in a grand scheme. So really, I don't think it's something that we can fully answer on a webinar like this. It's something that somebody, a technician that doesn't get into engineering and stuff on the regular basis, they're going to have to dig their heels a little bit and, and focus and, and do a little bit of research and try to wrap their head around it. Because sometimes it might take five, six, seven times of reading the same paragraph to really understand what it means. And this panel here is made up of, of people that are, are in that engineering space where a technician is not in that space and they're gonna have to dig in their heels, do a little bit of research and 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 like I said, read until you until until it makes sense in your head. Thank you for that, Gary. And that's why we have you on the panel today. The next question is for you actually. Can you speak to the cultivation of new service personnel and what educational qualifications are needed? 
uh, in this industry? New service personnel. Uh, well, I, I mean, as as most people know that we, we have this this gap in the skilled trades, meaning that in the way my perspective on the gap is we have we have the, the older generation up here, we have the younger generation here, and then we have this gap in between where the, there's a lack of, of knowledge and skill. Now, the new people coming in, I think because because we have this lack of skill, we have this lack of people gravitating towards the trades as of late, hopefully the, the, all the, the recent promotions help with this. But I think if you have a young person that is dedicated and willing to, to work and learn, uh, that, could, that might be the only requirement you need these days because it's hard to find, in, in my world, and, and I speak to other technicians, other, other business owners, they're having trouble just finding people, never mind someone that's skilled. So it's always best, I think, to take somebody that's green and train them the way you want. So having someone that can come in and is dedicated to work with you, learn, and, and they show up every day, they have some drive within them, and you see promise within them as a human being, I think that could be, uh, for some of these struggling business owners looking to find employees, that could be the only requirement that's needed. And then you take them aside and you train them the way you want them to be trained, and hopefully that's the right way. Excellent. Thank you, Gary. John, the next question on psychometrics. For psychometrics, what is the best control strategy when operating in economizer mode, such as differential, dry bulb, et cetera? What, what is that, that control, best control strategy? Um, usually we use you know, a, a total enthalpy approach with some sort of uh, mindfulness about the indoor relative humidity. Um, obviously, if you're starting to have an indoor relative humidity get above a set point, you're going to either need to start a cooling cycle or close down the economizer and start using more return air. Um, that's why we typically try to look at that, that total enthalpy, but you know, it just depends on your climate too. You know, I, I come from a hot, humid climate, so I'm used to dealing with uh, shutting down the economizer 95% of the time or 99% of the time and not being able to use it because of the high humidities outside. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really gonna come down to, to indoor versus outdoor humidity usually uh, is going to be your your key and you can look at dew point you know you can use a differential dew point and, and make sure you're maintaining a desired dew point inside to then close that economizer down thank you john back over to you to continue with your um actually the heck probably had a couple things you wanted to get in there and i've kind of monopolized a little bit so <laughs> yeah absolutely um so a lot of the questions that actually came through um were related to the Sacramento chart in itself. Um, so just kind of touch up on that. Uh, there are some questions if there are some charts out there that are in SI units. Uh, yes, there are. So instead of having Fahrenheit, you'll see Celsius. And then instead of VTUs, you will see kilojoules over kilograms. So yes, there are psychometric charts out there that are in SI units. Um, there was also another question if there are psychometric charts for higher temperatures. Absolutely. Uh, you, uh, the standard chart that you will see was a negative 10 to 130 degrees. The higher temperature psychometric chart you will see will be from 20 degrees to 300. Um, same way, you know, you if you if you know two, you know all. Uh, two variables, you know all the variables. Same same thing. Um, also, there was a couple questions about is wet bulb and dry bulb ever equal to each other? They are when you reach 100% relative humidity. Uh, just it tells you that there's a lot of moisture in the air. Um, so, for example, uh, we all know that dry bulb is the actual temperature that is outside. 
So for example, this morning I went outside and the temperature was 33 degrees and the dew point was at 32. Dew point is a, is a temperature at which air must be cooled for water vapor before it condenses into dew or frost. So when, what I mean by that is the relative humidity outside at that point when I was outside at 33 degrees, it was around 94 to 95%. That tells you when I was breathing, there was fog coming out of my mouth. That's the point where you see frost on, on the rooftop or fog. So that's basically how you can differentiate between each of those values, um, uh, wet bulb and dry bulb and uh, dew point. Um, do you have anything out there, John? Do you want to add anything to that one? No, I mean that's 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 a pretty good pretty good example of of what it would look like in the, in you know out out in the real world if you or if you're very close to to your dew point and you add just a little bit of of moisture like from from your breath that's yeah you're definitely going to see that increase in moisture that air is going to cool off and you're going to get that 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 air is going to hit the dew point. Um, Absolutely, so. uh, I think taking the real life and then applying it to the book really helps out. So um, whenever you see these terms, you would think about them in the broad perspective, but just simply going outside, seeing the temperature and just feeling it. And then also knowing, you know, something from your temp uh, from the weather, you'll see, you can connect the dots of what relative humidity means at that point. Um, mm -hmm. Another question was if, uh, do you know, do you need to know the design return air conditions and design outside air conditions for a coil to calculate sensible heat ratio? Or can you find the sensible heat ratio using measured return air and outside air? Uh, so design air and re design return air and design outside air conditions, you need to know those for a specific design day to appropriately use to know the capacity of your equipment. And then using a measured return air and outside air, you need to know that to know the load that's going to be on the equipment at the time of measurement. So it can be used uh, with supplier conditions and airflow um, to know what your current sensible and latent heat is of the equipment. Did you have anything to add to that one, John? No, that's a, that's a pretty good uh, recap on that. So yeah, you're your design day is just for you know getting your load to select equipment and kind of determining what your your peak peak or peak humidification day design is going to be and then like you said um, if you want to see what the equipment's doing right now you can measure it and, and determine how it's operating if you have an equipment problem I mean Gary you probably could add a little bit there It'd be a good way to determine you know is my equipment working properly if you've got the fan curve and and in, incoming air conditions out and you know, leaving air conditions from the equipment you can see your capacity. Yeah, and I mean, they're going back to what we talked about before with psychrometrics being part of an app. We can do this with with apps uh, like MeasureQuick, for example, where they 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 connect to many different manufacturers' probes, Testo, Fieldpiece. I think maybe UEI. There's different ones they connect to, and you can actually put a a temperature probe. Or a hygrometer uh, in front of the of, of a coil, an evaporator coil, and after the coil, and it takes all the measurements and it tells you how much capacity that machine is actually doing. Like you, you could have a, a ten ton machine, but if your airflow is not right, your TX valve is not set up right, and there's other setup parameters that are not correct, you might not get ten tons of actual capacity. So you can actually put probes before and after the evaporator and these apps will spit back at you measure quick for example the actual capacity that you're getting out of that machine 
And then from there on, if you're not getting the 10 tons that, that you think that you're getting out of the machine, you can make some changes uh, to airflow, to, to the TX valve, to, to the way it runs in general, to try to, to, to match the, the rated capacity of the, of the machine itself. Great answer. Mahek, John, Garrett, we have a question from the audience. The question is, heating season in Canada and North, Northern USA, as a matter of fact, is at least 270 days of the year. Why are you concentrating so much on cooling and so little on heating situations or scenarios? I, I guess I'll try to field that. Um, so usually high humidity is where you can see the higher potential for, for building damage. Um, you can have potential for microbial growth. Um, and usually removing humidity is going to be your more technologically difficult uh, parameter. Um, adding humidity, you know, steam humidifiers or other types of, of humidification equipment can add humidity back to the space um, pretty readily. Um, maybe we should focus a little bit more on that in, in future topics and when we get into the equipment side of it, maybe in, in the third part of psychometrics, we can talk a little bit more about the humidification and dealing with, with low humidity air and, and adding humidity to it. Um, Maybe I'm a little bit biased too, because I, I came from a hot and humid climate not that long ago, so. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll just throw something in there. I, I mean, it, there's, I right now I have to do some service. I, it's like the shoe maker, right? I, I'm at home, I haven't done the service on my own humidifier yet. And, and I feel it dry in my home, like itchy skin. Uh, yesterday I threw on a pair of sweatpants just to do whatever and, and they're, they're kind of clinging to my to my leg right and and you when you take them off at night you can see the static and that is due to the the low humidity in the home so adding humidity back into a home is actually a good thing if you're not going too high and and also the, the building materials you don't want to dry them out right you don't want to dry out building materials and there's actually studies that show that lower humidity in a home from an indoor air quality standpoint can actually transmit viruses like airborne viruses easier uh in, in a drier environment than a more humid environment which is kind of interesting well to, to add to what john and, and gary have said about indoor conditions in in the winter time if i look at building heating building heating is easy i can add heat energy into a space very very quickly very very easily with any number of methods whether i'm using um, you know, fossil fuel fired forced air equipment, whether I'm using a heat pump, whether I'm using, you know, hot water coils inside an air handle or in a fan coil, adding heat to the space is quick and easy. And so we talk more about dehumidification and the cooling process because it's a much more complex process. There's a lot of, a lot more moving parts to it. So I, I really think this is part of the reason we don't spend as much time talking about heating um, but you're right, we do need to spend more time talking about humidification because that is a more complex process. So team, we've spent almost 30 minutes on psychometrics and the properties of air and, and you know, clearly it's a, it's a hot topic that we need to continue with. And I think we have plans to have uh, psychometrics and the properties of air part three coming in January, February timeframe. So maybe we can move on to the fundamentals of steam now, yeah? Neil, I think that'd be a really good idea because we're going to run out of time here real quick if we're not careful. Um, so we talked about STEAM and we've done three webinars now on STEAM. And one of the things that we, we learned in talking to everybody about STEAM is, wow, 
there's an awful lot of young folks out there that really don't know STEAM. And so we've gotten lots and lots of questions. Um, one of the questions that was pervasive in, in after all three webinars is what is probably the number one thing that we see done wrong in STEAM systems? And, and I'll start out. Um, the biggest thing I see is poor condensate return piping, um, where we have condensate return piping that either A, has lift to it, where we're coming out of the trap and we're going vertically up in the air, trying to get condensate away from a heat exchanger. Well, in that application, where I have a modulating steam control valve, my steam pressure is infinitely variable inside the shell of that heat exchanger. And it could very easily be zero or even sub-atmospheric. Well, when it goes sub-atmospheric, if I have lift on the outlet side of the trap, I won't drain condensate. Um, the other thing that we see that's really, really problematic is the lack of vacuum breakers on a heat exchanger. If the heat exchanger starts to go sub-atmospheric, the steam valve closes and all that steam in there collapses, we want to drain it out. We want to make sure it does not stay in a, in a vacuum state so that it can drain out of the out through into the condensate return line. If you don't put a vacuum breaker on there, that can't happen. So you'll hold, you know, it's same theory. You put your finger over the end of a straw after you filled it up with water and pick it up out of the bottle. <coughs> that fluid stays in the straw until you release the vacuum. Same thing happens inside your heat exchanger. Um, Rush, what about you? What uh, what things do you see? Rush, you're on mute. That's better. Um, I agree with everything you've said, Tony. Um, I, I think the right sizing of traps is on a discharge side of a heat exchanger, especially on modulating conditions where the condensate could rapidly um, accumulate and you need to discharge it as fast as possible. So the proper size trap, the proper trap with good air venting capabilities, I see as a big problem out there most of the time. And again, it's not the heat exchanger itself or even the control valves. It's the way it's piped. It's not putting proper drip legs in the right places. Maybe uh, an, if, if your steam traps are not good air venters, having an additional air vent um, on the system will always help. Um, it's the smallest and smallest of things. As far as, there's a myth too that traps pump, they lift and, and, and they truly don't. It's, it's all based on differential. So if we can at least on the discharge side of the shell end of the heat exchanger, even create an artificial head from the bottom of the heat exchanger to the trap, just make it a little bit longer. At least it creates an artificial head to push the condensate away through a check valve. At least if there's some pressure in there, we'll get rid of it out of the shell of the heat exchanger. And those are probably the biggest common problems I see. Um, one of the other questions that came up was dealing with superheated steam and, and how we deal with superheated steam. And I've had numerous engineers ask me, well, I ran through a PRV, so my steam shouldn't be superheated. It should be whatever the, the new saturation pressure, saturation temperature is. Steam follows the basic law of thermodynamics that we can't create nor destroy energy. We can only transfer it from one form to another. So when I reduce the pressure, 
my saturation, my temperature of the steam on the leaving side or the downstream side of the PRV is the same temperature it was when it went in. Now there's there's a little bit of loss there um, because there's always going to be some loss due to radiation going through the PRV. There's also some losses that are naturally going to occur um, as we do shift the pressure a little bit. Um, but by and large, your downstream temperature is going to be at whatever your inlet inlet saturation temperature was. And the problem with that is everything that you're sending, let's say you're sending 10 pounds of steam downstream of that PRV, you've sized everything for 10 PSIG entering steam, temp, steam pressure, but you've not sized it for a superheated steam condition. You know, Gary, I know you know exactly what superheat is because um, dealing with it on the refrigeration side superheated steam is no different. It's temperature that's added to a gas above its point of complete vaporization. So now we've got this really, really dry steam going into a heat exchanger. The problem is because that steam is so far away from saturation, it doesn't like to give up its energy and condense back into condensate, which is how we get steam to give up its energy. It has to turn back into condensate to give up energy. So in that case, what we end up having to do is we have to make a put a bigger heat exchanger in, and generally speaking, um, we increase the size on average about 10 to 15 percent in surface area to give it more area to condense back down. So there's two ways of dealing with it. One, the easiest way, um, and this is what we used to do way back before we had energy code, is we just had un uninsulated sections of piping. We may have 20 or 30 feet of uninsulated pipe and just let it radiate heat off to the mechanical room. Well, OSHA and everybody else has said, now nah, we can't do that anymore. It's a waste of energy. It's a safety hazard. So now we have to insulate it. So the easiest thing to do is to put in a desuperheater. Basically, we're just injecting some condensate downstream of the PRV through a control valve and a controller tied to it. And we're basically giving up, getting the steam to cool off a little bit. But because what we're doing is we're flashing off condensate, we're actually creating more steam, so we're not wasting any energy in the desuperheating process. So those are kind of the things that I see all the time um, that we have trouble, you know, people have trouble understanding and dealing with. Rush, you got anything you'd like to add about steam? For superheat, <laughs> the first advice I was ever given away with superheated steam, especially on industrial and process applications, was to run away from it and don't bother with it. Try to use something else. <laughs> For HVAC, it's, I've been taught that it's really a phenomenon. Like you mentioned, Tony, at 100 PSI, we got theoretically 338 degrees Fahrenheit in that pipework, and we're going to drop it down to 15 PSI, in which the temperature should be dropped quite a bit, and it doesn't. It will eventually dissipate away if you leave a length of pipe between the pressure reducing valve and the heat exchanger, quite a length, 20 to 25 pipe diameters, if at all possible in the system. It will eventually dissipate. Desuperheating, uh, de I think, is as good as long as they work it. It's a good quality control because I've seen people introduce too much condensate or too much atomized water into the system and making the system worse. But if it can be avoided, it's a good thing. But the length of pipe, again, it's not the products, it's not the system, it's the piping work itself. If you could leave some length of time or space, PRV to heat exchanger, it should have dissipated away mostly at that point. 
Thanks, Russ. Russ and Tony. Russ and Tony, we have a question from the audience for you. A statement is based on fossil fuels for energy production. Shouldn't we be phasing this out? Well, that's kind of a thorny subject because there are certain processes where I still need steam. Um, you know, if we go with the really simple humidification, um, because steam humidification is actually faster than water evaporation out of a water style or wet plate humidifier. Um, the other thing is in um, sterilizers, if I'm sterilizing medical instruments, I need that high heat to sterilize the medical instruments. Now, yes, there are other methodologies um, to sterilize medical equipment, but they also have certain drawbacks. Um, there are There's chemical sterilization uh, for medical instruments, but the, the materials um, that they use to sterilize with chemicals, those chemicals are extremely hazardous if you breathe them in. So steam provides some really good sterilization without the hazards. Um, so if I look at that, that is someplace where steam really comes into play. If I look at the industrial process world, um, steam can also be uh, a valuable asset in the industrial process world for you know doing things like making beer. Um, you know, steam is widely used in the brewing industry. It's also widely used in the dairy industry for pasteurizing milk. It's used in the orange juice industry for pasteurizing orange juice. Because of the high heat, we can get that heat very quickly, pasteurize the product, and get it back down to temperature for a safe storage. Um, so I don't think we're ever going to see the, the, the use of steam go away. What we do have to do is get smart in how we design steam systems, so that the systems are designed to maximize the energy use and don't just use that steam one time um, at a higher pressure and throw the condensate away. Take that condensate, turn it into flash steam and use that multiple times. Russ and I've talked about this in the paper industry that you may use that initial high pressure steam, drop the pressure a little bit through a process, flash the condensate off, make some flash steam, you may go through five or six iterations of using the same condensate, theoretically, to make different, to satisfy different load conditions. So it's being intelligent about how you design to get the maximum amount of energy out of that condensate that you're gonna produce. Thank you, Tony. Uh, Russ, anything to add here? Yeah, I couldn't have said it better than Tony himself. I, I think when it when it, it is process and industrial steam, it's not going away. There's just it's in the process and industrial industries. I don't think there's any cheaper form of heat transfer on the planet, honestly, that can do what you can do with sterilization and the beer, cheese industries, many many industries, um, microbiologies, and even hospitals are a great training ground for the amount of steam they use between humidity ovens and cookers and all kinds of things i think for hvac steam i personally would not want to heat my home with steam because it's just high in maintenance and it's not as efficient as what's offered today as forced air gas or even hot water coils in in, in a forced air furnace even so it, it could it go away from hvac i think so it could possibly go away depending on what people have in their plant now in saying that if i have an industrial process application like tony said if you can reuse that and heat your buildings and your office spaces with that reuse steam again, sure, it's going to be even more efficient than anything you could offer actually use. But the maintenance can be high. And that's really about it.
Yep. Thank you, Russ and Tony. The next question from the audience, when you introduce condensate for superheating, how do you prevent flashing? Well, you what you're actually doing is you are flashing the condensate. That's what we want to have happen. Because what we're doing is, is we're taking some of the energy in that superheated steam we're causing that energy we're causing that superheated steam to give up its energy by flashing off the condensate and creating steam that's closer to saturation downstream of the desuperheater um, and a desuperheater is nothing more than the best way i can describe one is you've all seen a, a a bottle a spray bottle for window cleaner windex something like that um, it all it is is a nozzle that's in the pipeline that is spraying atomized water into the steam flow and it's causing that steam to flash that water off and in turn drop the, drop the saturation temperature, drop the temperature of the steam closer to saturation. So it's not a difficult process, but there are some caveats in sizing these superheaters and understanding the load range ability down for that desuperheater, um, how much, what your steam capacity is at design versus minimum load, so it gets sized correctly, because if it's sized wrong, it will add a whole bunch of water to the pipeline and create lots of other issues for you. Excellent. I have a question for Peter Wolf. Peter, does Armstrong provide piping assemblies for steam heat exchangers that could counter poor field piping? Does Armstrong offer really? those types of? Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge, Neil. Gotcha. Do you know I, I think, you know, Peter, it really comes down to if somebody wants to buy a steam heat exchanger and for us to provide the ancillary piping coming out of the heat exchanger and even the, the control piping going into the steam on the steam side, it really comes down to us building a package unit um, like we've done. We talked about that pharmaceutical site you and I visited. Um, where we didn't have any condensate return problems. Um, our biggest problem was is somebody didn't quite understand steam distribution and created mm. lots of yeah. problems for us. Yeah. So um, uh, I suppose the answer to the question is that yes, we do do it when we do our steam to water heat exchanger, shell and tube heat exchanger packages, of which we do a regular number, mainly for pharma, but for other uh, process applications as well. Thank you, Russ, and thank you, Tony, for that in-depth view of uh, fundamentals of steam. Maybe we hand it over to Peter Wolf now to talk to us a little bit about pump motor technology. Peter? Yeah, thanks, for, yeah, thanks very much, Neil. And uh, so we, when we talked about putting together this presentation a few uh, months ago, um, uh, I'd realized that the electric motors technology hadn't really changed much in decades. And yet here in the last 10, 15 years, electric motor technology was being transformed uh, completely, both at uh, both small and large, with the introduction of um, permanent magnet motors and ECM motors. And so it was time to basically educate the, the audience, because I could talk, learn from my lunch and learns and the like, uh, discussions with people that it, the new motors weren't really, that the technology of them weren't really understood. And uh, so the presentation was highly successful. The audience was uh, very large indeed uh, for it, which shows that a fairly dry technical subject did was of interest to a lot of people. And some of the questions that came through did um, uh, did show that there was a need for uh, for, for the education. And I'm just gonna, some of the questions I've got in front of me here, just taken in order, are, are typical of it, like uh, uh, a permanent magnet motor. It doesn't have to be inverted duty, does it? 
that, that is that right? And of course, the answer is, of course, it does have to be inverter duty because that's the only way that uh, permanent motors, permanent magnet motors can run. They must have a VFD on them. And what is an inverter duty motor? Well, all an inverter duty motor is, it's an electric motor with thick enough of a good enough quality insulation around the winding to prevent uh, the winding insulation being punctured by uh, uh, voltage spikes, the so-called DV by DT spikes that occur. So, uh, so yes, permanent magnet motors uh, do, uh, do are inverted duty by standard. Another question was, does the permanent magnet motor come in different enclosures, uh, uh, i.e. are the only open drip proof? Well, I can't find an open drip proof permanent magnet motor in the marketplace. If there is one, please tell me. Everyone I see is a TEFC, IP44 is a minimum and often um, higher than that. Um, Another question that came through is, uh, is there a difference between the permanent magnet motor and electronically commutated motor? Well, that was, uh, that, that was the whole point of the uh, presentation. And I think the key, th and I'll just repeat for those that didn't see the presentation, permanent magnet motors are essentially an AC motor that, that is built like a, a conventional induction motor, except that the rotor has got permanent magnets in it and doesn't need any induced currents in that rotor. Whereas an ECM is um, electronically commutated motor. So it's a motor with built-in uh, controls, which, which apply bursts of DC current, negative and positive, so that you get two focused or concentrated coils that are, that are um, located around the rotor and the rotor has permanent magnets in it and then it either pulls or pushes, depending on the polarity, uh, the rotor around the, the motor. So it's DC, so it's effectively a DC uh, machine. And ECM motors, as a result, are quite small. They're limited in their size, generally one horsepower or less, whereas permanent magnet motors uh, go up to, um, at the moment, several hundreds of horsepower. So that's another question we had. Peter, a question from the audience yeah. for you. For, for sure. speed modulation applications, how does the robustness of a VFD motor compare with ECM, electronic commutated motors? Robustness, well, they're both robust. I don't think there's any, I wouldn't like to compare their, them in terms of robustness. They both uh, have solid mechanicals in terms of the, both of them have permanent magnet motors. The permanent magnets are generally extremely uh, stable machines. Because they don't involve induced currents, there's no uh, in, it, induced currents in the rotor, which would otherwise heat up, which are the induction motors, heat up the shaft and then heat up the bearings. And then one of the major reasons for induction motor failures is due to bearing failure caused by excessive heat out of the rotor, which uh, because of the induced currents in the rotor. Neither the ECM nor the permanent magnet motor have either of these uh, have induced currents and so they run cooler and the bearings, the ball bearings, have a much easier life. So they're both robust uh, pieces of kit. Thank you. Gary, Are you? what are you seeing in the field, Gary? Anything to add so far? Yeah, so I mean I'm staring at a furnace right now and and, and, and this, this compares, this is going along the lines of um, ECM style motors that can be fitted onto pumps or fans and one of the, the major concerns with an ECM motor is high static pressure in a duct and reports that when we start seeing high static pressures in a duct, we start 
having ECM motors that fail. And, and I've talked to a few people about this and, and some of the things that we can come up with is that when you have high static, a lot of times you have a lack of flow, a lack of, a lack of airflow. So we're actually causing these ECMs, the electronics and the ECMs to run warmer, just like a heat exchanger in, inside of a, a, an HVAC system that's forced air. If you don't have the correct flow, it's gonna run hot or potentially fail sooner with cracks, holes, uh, so on and so forth. So uh, I guess I'll throw this back at you, Peter. As, as far as the cooling of, of these uh, ECM and VFD uh, motors and pumps, is there any particular way that you would maintain these things for, for, to keep them cool and prevent them from overheating so there's less premature failure? Well, the answer would be control, and that was the question I was going to throw at you, Gary, when you okay. were describing this problem. <laughs> How are they controlled? How are these? I'm not familiar with this particular application of ECM, but how is the motor controlled? Is it controlled, or is it just running at a constant speed? Well, a lot of the times, uh, some there's different ways it can be controlled. It can be controlled off of demand. They can be controlled off of static pressure in the duct and, and it comes back to, yeah, are we controlling them properly for the application? And is it, is it the motor that's, that's failing or is it the thing that's, uh, how is it failing? Well, because the or the I've, 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 I've talked to uh, an electronics expert regarding this and this, this is the kind of theory that we had is that because it's an electronic device and it's running warm, you remove some airflow, the airflow is taking away that heat. So you remove, you remove the airflow that's taking away the heat, it's gonna run warmer. And if anybody's ever look, look at, looked at a circuit board that's been running hot, I mean, you can see hot spots on it in different places. So you create airflow um, and, okay. and ways to, to mitigate and remove the heat from the electronics, it's probably gonna have a longer life. Oh, absolutely, and I think I, I think you, I, I now know the answer to your question. These are ECM motors without a fan. They're dependent upon the fan movement. They're dependent upon the airflow through the duct to keep them cool. So yes. if there's no airflow through the duct, then they heat up. Ah, that's right. Well, that, well uh, happily, uh, the ECMs we fit to our compass, compass, uh, compass R have got a fan on the inside. Perfect. Okay. We don't see it, so they're sucking air in at one end of the of the uh, motor and then expelling it down the other end of the motor. So there is a continuous airflow uh, through the, through the motor, even if there's no air water flow through the pump end, because the pump is still running and the fan is still the internal fan is still uh, keeping the internals cool. As a result, we have not seen any failures on our ECM Compass R's or Compass H's at all. They're so from a service from a service standpoint, making sure that the, the, the airflow pattern through that VFD is is not blocked and because and, and, I mean I've been in the mechanical rooms where the, the, the vents on the motor, the openings on the motor, they start to get blocked. So yeah. every once in a while just checking those and even blowing them out if need be to, to keep that airflow pattern consistent. Understood, Gary. Wouldn't an induction motor in a in a, in a handling air in an air handler or in a ductwork, wouldn't that be as just as vulnerable if it's not got its own fan? If it depends because they give off heat and they need airflow over the either through the winding or over the body, depending on whether yeah, the yeah, 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 exactly. And, and that's why some some motors are designed, uh, especially motors that are installed indoors. There, you can there's in the shell of the motor. There's openings around it, right? Yeah. Um, 
so so that motor can be cooled and then the ones that i, I believe that the, the technical term for that is open drip and the if you're installing a motor that could be installed in a place where they it could get potentially wet they're usually outfitted with fans on on one end of them to, to cool them okay all right thank you thanks gary yeah, no problem Neil, what do you say? It's five to twelve. I see here. Yeah, I think we should switch over to variable primary. Let's let's take it so. to variable primary. I, yeah, I think so as well. So the variable nice. primary presentation I've given, I think, between Tony and myself and our other uh, people in Armstrong, we've given lots of uh, presentations and discussions about the, uh, the classic primary secondary system, the variable primary only system. And it's what we've learned, what we've learned from the feedback from the, the audiences is that there's a great deal of understanding. There's still a few pieces that still fox uh, the average, the average, uh, quite a few people. And the, the number, the two things were: what about on a, in a primary secondary system, the um, the balance line, the line that connects the primary circuit to the to the secondary circuit? Why does it have to be big? Why can't it have uh, no? Uh, why does it have to be a certain nominal bore in order to prevent, uh, uh, in order to allow usual operation? And that's one question that we're always asked. And uh, the answer is, is that you don't want the, the balance line itself to be a cause of water moving from A to B. You want the, the pressure at both ends to be effectively zero, so that the only thing that's pushing water one way up the balance pipe or the other way is, the, is either the primary or secondary circuit pumps doing it themselves, not the balance pipe doing it, not the balance, not because of the the uh, pressure loss or friction loss in the in the uh, the decoupler in the decoupler line. That's question one. The other question that came out of the uh, variable primary was the two key ones are what about the um, bypass line where needed, which is put it, which is necessary in order to allow for a minimum throw through the chiller. Uh, where is that best place? Close to the chiller or far away? That was a regular. There was quite a few questions that came up um, uh, during and after the presentation, and the answer is never immediately to buy the chiller because then you end up with cold water coming out of the chiller and going straight back into the chiller rather and that change of temperature that would occur as the bypass line opens the chiller will struggle to respond quickly to it chillers are very that take several minutes to respond to changes in load and putting a, an extra uh, reducing the temperature very quickly will cause problems with that chiller so it's best to move the bypass line to away from it. A lot of the questions also come from the size of the bypass line and what type of valve to apply to the bypass line. At this point here, I refer to Tony for his expertise in valves and CV and, and the like. <laughs> Tony. Thanks, <But> Peter. <laughs> um, so, you know, when we look at the, the sizing of that control valve for the system bypass, mm -hmm. the thing you got to remember is the only time you're going to be bypassing flow is when you're down to minimum capacity. So that means you're down to one chiller running and that chiller is starting to approach its minimum design flow at minimum load. It's don't size the valve as a as a line size valve for the full flow of the chiller. You know, typically mm -hmm. it's you know most chillers it's around 30 35% of the rated design flow of the chiller. So you want to size the valve for that flow rate. Well now the next thing is what pressure drop do I want across that across that valve? You know, typical control valve out in the system for air handlers, fan coils, all that stuff. 
I'm somewhere around a three to five pound pressure drop for those control valves. For a master control valve or a bypass valve at the system level, I want to be about a 10 pound pressure drop. The reason I want that higher pressure drop, one, is I've got a higher pressure drop, I get better controllability. Higher pressure drop means that I've got more sensitivity in that valve to be able to go, you know, how much water I can move through that valve from full open to full closed. Mm. <clears throat> and so having that higher pressure drop allows that flexibility. Something else to think about in, in relationship to what Peter said about where to put the bypass line, you know, do we put it close to the mechanical room? Do we put it out in the system somewhere? If you think about it and you put it really, you know, every chilled water system out there and even hot water systems have a minimum system volume per ton of refrigeration or per BTU of heating capacity. If I put that bypass valve in the mechanical room, you know, right where the chillers are at, right where the pumps are at, I have to recalculate my system volume at that minimum load point to make sure there's enough volume in the chiller and the associated piping in the mechanical room. If I don't have enough volume in that piping section that's in the mechanical room, I may have to take that bypass line and drop it down through a buffer tank and put it back into the system to add volume for that minimum flow rate and that minimum load condition because they still have to have that minimum volume. It's going to cost a bit of money as well. Yeah. Mm. So that's one of the reasons I, I really caution people about where to put that bypass. I like to get it out away from the mechanical room because it gets you around so many problems. Um, it gets you around um, rapid return rapid return water temperature drop. It gets you around system volume. It can fix a whole lot of sins by putting it out away from the mechanical room. Excellent. Gary, any questions, comments for Peter and Tony? Yeah, so I, I guess there, there's discussion around uh, primary and secondary loops there. Um, for, from a from a heating standpoint, from a boiler standpoint, would would in-floor heating and heat uh, water that's heated for the purpose of a hydronic heating coil would those be considered primary and secondary loops because they're at two different temperatures, right? Well, generally they're not primary secondary. Um, what I what my preference is when I'm doing a combined loop like that where I've got in-floor radiant that I'm running at let's say 120 degrees or 115 degrees and I've got air handlers that I may need to run at 140, 160, 180. What I'll typically do is I'll produce water at the higher temperature and come off the return side and let the return side water feed my radiant hot water loop. Um, so I'm getting rid of heat initially with my air handling units or fan coils and then using the residual on the return side for um, my infloor radiant loop. Um, and that way I don't have to worry about creating two different piping loops and I also don't have to worry about inadvertently sending 160 or 180 degree water to my infloor radiant. Okay. Definitely don't want to walk across a hot floor. Yeah, that, that makes sense. But if let, let's say, for instance, you didn't get rid of enough heat in in the hydronic coil, would you still have to utilize like a mixing valve to, to introduce some cold water into that loop that's going to your inflow radiant potentially? Yes. Yeah, you're still going to have to temper okay. it down because you, if it's if it's in slab radiant heat, you don't want to send too hot of water to that. Um, think about walking across it barefoot. Yeah. Uh, you don't want that floor. 
Okay, perfect. Excellent. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Tony.